Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp of Return to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. We're here today with James Gordon Finlayson. He is a reader in philosophy and director of the Center for Social and Political Thought at the University of Sussex. Earlier this year, he published his book, The Habermas-Rawls Debate, out again earlier this year by Columbia University Press. Welcome to the show. Uh, Professor Finlayson. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So let's uh, dive straight in. What prompted you to study both the dispute and the exchange between philosophers John Rawls and Jürgen Habermas? Okay. So, well, the, the simple question is that I was approached by Columbia to write a book on this topic. Um, and I like the other books that Columbia have done, and I thought I could write a good book. So I put in a proposal. Um, It's unusual in the history of philosophy that two major philosophers writing in the same area actually uh, come together and uh, exchange ideas directly on one another's work. And in this case, um, it happened, although it was uh, kind of curated and invited by Sidney Morgenbesser, um, who was the, I think he was the special editions um, person at the Journal of Philosophy. Um, And they managed to get the two to you know, uh, basically uh, criticize each idea. Now, the thing is that they each was writing a book of political philosophy at the time, but independently. And although each knew the other's work, they were actually immersed in their own projects at the time they came together. Um, and that meant, and f- f- well, one thing and another um, uh, happened, and the original idea was that they were to come together and involve a kind of great dispute about matters of common interest in political philosophy. But actually that didn't eventuate for various reasons. And what happened is, in the end, Habermas wrote a review of Rawls's uh, book of political philosophy, Political Liberalism. Uh, and it was a book that he'd really only just got hold of, and that he, um, although he's he was familiar with uh, Rawls's early and middle work, he hadn't really had time to fully digest the newer work. Um, and for his part, Rawls hadn't, although he was familiar with Habermas's work, and he was a very um, 
you know, he was very thorough in his preparation of anything. He'd never published anything on Habermas, but he made sure that he'd he'd read quite a lot of Habermas's work and he thought about it. And he he even kind of got tuition from various people about what Habermas was saying. Um, anyway, so it made me think that, so in the end, the exchange was really Habermas writing a critical review of a new book he didn't fully understand or he was coming to terms with. And then Rawls replied to that critical review. And when Rawls replied, he spent quite a lot of time um, just setting Habermas straight on things he thought Habermas had misunderstood. So the exchange then was really quite narrowly circumscribed and focused on political liberalism. Um, Now, each of them, of course, had their theories in their heads, but I distinguish between the exchange, which is just a series of articles that appeared in um, Journal of Philosophy, and the dispute, which is what the original idea of them coming together was to bring their different theories uh, uh, to bear on one another and to try and find the interesting areas of agreement and disagreement. So if you like, the dispute is something that I stage in my book between political liberalism on the one hand and Habermas is between facts and norms. And the exchange is my comment on the articles that they wrote on uh, one another's theories, two of which appeared in the Journal of Philosophy and one um, Habermas brought out soon afterwards. So that's 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 kind of the, the history of the, the dispute and the exchange and why I came to write on them. And this exchange was principally in the uh, mid-90s, correct? It was, yeah, 1995. I mean, um, Habermas's third article on the morality of world, reasonableness versus true or the morality of worldviews, came out, I think, a year later in German and then in English. So what is the precipitate judgment, and how does your study challenge or reconfigure such a judgment? Right. So I used the label, the precipitate judgment, to um, describe what was a fairly widespread view uh, initially, uh, that their exchange you know, uh, in the Journal of Philosophy was much ado about nothing. Right? They hadn't really understood one another. They didn't really engage at any kind of deep and interesting level at their respective arguments. Uh, there was quite a, there were quite a few misunderstandings, um, and I, I think what was happening happening with with that judgment. I, I think actually, who was it? I think it was um, <clears throat> Professor Jonathan Wolfe, who's now at Oxford and was at UCL. Uh, described it somewhat uncharitably as um, the failing of the two greatest minds of political philosophy or something like that, or a failure of the two greatest philosophical minds to meet. Uh, And other people at Cambridge, Andrew Cooper, uh, another philosopher at Cambridge, uh, says that he thought that uh, they had, uh, I've forgotten what he says now, they, they failed to connect with one another. So the precipitate judgment was that this is a damp squib. Everyone expected sparks to fly in these real engaged, deep philosophical debate between um, two very important political philosophers, and instead of which there's this rather meek, slightly timid, 
review, um, um, which involves quite a few criticisms, some successful and some uh, unsuccessful because based on misunderstandings. And then a long reply in which um, Rawls kind of sets out what he thinks his work is in political liberalism and where it's been misunderstood, and then introduce one or two refinements to it in response to um, Habermas's criticisms. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I challenge that view, partly because I think people are, they don't really understand the history of the exchange properly. Uh, and they also are a little bit unfair uh, about it. I don't think it is as unimportant as most of those people think. So the preci- precipitate judgment is really just dismissing the Habermas rules debate as being of any real interest to political philosophy. And I think that if you look sufficiently closely at it and identify the real areas of dispute, um, you can open up very interesting avenues and issues in political philosophy. So by way of introduction, uh, can you explain Habermas's principle D, the validity basis of meeting, rationally motivated consensus, and why discourse at Discourse ethics is variously described as Kantian, Median, and Colbergian. Yeah, that's that's quite a lot to do, and I, I will. Um, but, but discourse ethics is really a kind of moral theory. Um, but it's not a general moral theory in the normal sense of normative moral theory that you find in a lot of philosophy where philosophers approach the kind of first-order questions of what we ought to do and why. It's more a moral theory from the perspective of a social philosopher uh, or a sociologist like Durkheim looking at the social function of morality and its importance to human forms of association. Um, Principle D is what Habermas thinks of as the basic principle of discourse. So basically, his view is is like a modern variant of Aristotle's view that human beings are beings with speech and practical reason, and that human association, um, uh, especially in uh, modern forms of society, um, is inflected and articulated through speech and through reason. Um, And that the shared meanings and understandings in the social world are largely based on the reasons that uh, speakers can adduce for their utterances when called for to explain them to others. So there's this, he's got a, he's got a, a not uncontroversial view of the meaning of uh, utterances and speech um, that is almost better understood as a theory of intersubjective understanding um, than it is as a theory of meaning. And it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, like I said, it's not uncontroversial. Um, so the validity, so principle D is basically the principle that he thinks structures um, a lot of uh, discourse. Uh, and it takes the kind of logical form of a conditional, right? A conditional with 
uh, on the left hand, what's something he calls validity, which stands in for, if you like, uh, the basis of meanings or understandings in reason. And on the other hand, uh, on the on the right hand side of the uh, of the arrow, as it were, is uh, the amenability uh, to consensus. So he thinks roughly that if I say something, I make a statement like there's a book on the table in front of me, and that statement is valid, which might mean it's true, and it might mean um, something else in the context of other uh, dis applications. But say it just means it's true. What that um, it should follow from if it's true that anyone else who can see that right and can understand my reason for saying it will agree to it. Um, so the actual principle, the formulation of the principle is as follows. Um, only those norms claim to be valid that can or could meet with the approval of all affected in their capacity as participants in a practical discourse. Okay, so I've left something out. Uh, principle D is a principle of uh, a princi principle governing the acceptance of what he calls norms or rules. Um, but it has the same structure uh, as uh, the principle governing um, uh, the acceptance of uh, statements. Um, so I talked about um, the example of if I say something, it's true, then everybody ought to agree to it in um, in discourse. And he thinks there's a, a practical analog. If I say something that's right, right, I do so on the basis of a rule that everyone um, affected by uh, ought to be able to accept in their capacity in their capacity as participants in in a practical discourse. So. Principle D then states a necessary condition of the validity, take validity here to mean justifiability, of practical norms. And the, the necessary condition is that it meet with the reasoned agreement of all affected. Um, it's supposed to be a principle that governs um, practical discourse uh, at a kind of below the level of morality. It's not itself a moral principle. Um, it's a principle of discourse, and it's just one that governs all our uh, discursive interactions with other people in society. So that's principle D and the validity basis of meaning. Was there something else that you... A uh, rationally motivated consensus. So that's the ideal of agreement um, that a valid uh, norm is supposed to meet. So if I say, I don't know, killing people is wrong, it's supposed to be that uh, all interlocutors or everyone affected by that particular principle um, can agree to it, not only agree to it and accept it as a, as a valid principle and welcome it from their perspective, but to agree to it uh, on the basis of the same reasons. Um, so that's a very strong construal of, uh, it's, it's a very strong condition um, that, uh, uh, a norm uh, is uh, or can be accepted or can be amenable to a, a rationally motivated consensus. Um, so he has got a, he, he asserts a very tight and strong connection between consensus or agreement and, if you like, justifiability of 
uh, utterances. Now, how did Habermas's discourse ethics remedy the problem of social order? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. That's funny because I said, in a way, Habermas's discourse ethics became just another moral theory, but it wasn't, it wasn't really um, designed as just another moral theory. So when I say just another moral theory, we generally think of moral theories as answering the questions of what one ought to do and why one ought to do it. But he was more interested in how morality and especially this, the ability of um, discourse to uh, elicit and institute and sometimes repair agreements uh, between people um, Agree, and he uses the word Verständigung, which is um, uh, sort of ambiguous between agreement and uh, understanding. So some people think uh, the word consensus is the best translation of Verständigung. And some people think that um, reaching agreement is uh, a better translation of it. Um, and some people who are very critical of Habermas, like Raymond Goyce think that it's just a terribly ambiguous term which leads to all kinds of problems. Uh, so he, he, it's not that his theory, right, is the answer to the problem. It's more what he wants to say is that conflicts between people constantly emerge in human association. Uh, and these might take the form of disagreements about something. Um, they might take the form of practical conflicts and they might take the form of moral conflicts. But whenever they erupt, um, human beings are kind of precipitated because our default um, setting, as it were, is to reason things out with other people right? and to use speech and reason to, to solve conflicts um, before we use, say, deception or force or violence. Because that's our default setting as 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 rational um, beings, um, then we enter into a kind of informal realm of argumentation that he calls discourse. Whenever these problems arise, in order to uh, in order to solve them, so normally they don't have to be solved because we we share um, expectations and rules um, with other people of of how to behave, right? Which are which are not questioned, but um, and that's why we, you know, manage to um, live our lives in very close proximity to an awful lot of other people without constantly getting involved in kind of costly uh, conflicts or physical violence and things like that. Um, but occasionally, um, uh, it's it's as it were the exception rather than the norm. Occasionally, conflict, conflicts will arise, and they they will do so continually. And then we use. Um, discourse in order to solve them. And uh, when we enter into a moral discourse, the result of that is that we, if successful, that we manage to agree on a new principle, which then filters down into the kind of unquestioned background of our social life. So that's how moral discourse in his uh, earlier conception of early conceptions of discourse ethics was supposed to be the answer to the problem of social order. After 1991, how and why did Habermas's doctrine of the priority of moral rightness and solidarity modify his conception of what he referred to as uh, uh, principle U and its justifications? Yeah. So, okay, so principle U didn't 
really change. Um, uh, and its justification went through various iterations. Um, there's a very brilliant um, book by a German called Conrad Ott, and there's another series of articles by Christoph Luma that set this out really well, and I talk about it a little bit in my book. But but the real issue, I think, uh, and the real change uh, that happened around 1991 was that prior to that point, he had tended to think of the moral and the practical as kind of uniform, as a, as a wide uniform domain. Um, and um, in 1991, he introduced the idea that solidarity is the other side of justice so that justice is a kind of rational um principle uh but it is kind of embedded in a more effective affective set of human relations between individuals which he called solidarity um and that i think he just wants a view of moral rightness that isn't completely rationalistic and and formal but that somehow embedded more um embedded in human psychology and in human emotions and in and and in our if you like character through socialization um now at the same time as he introduced the idea of solidarity as the other side of justice he also introduced alongside the idea of uh, moral discourse uh, a notion of ethical discourse, which he then uh, went on to distinguish quite sharply from moral discourse. So morality, according to Habermas, is a matter of questions of right and wrong, questions of what is just and what is unjust, and these are separate from questions of what is good for humankind and uh, what we want to do. And he he tends he tries to divide up the the realm of practical reason into a tripartite division of morality ethics and what he calls pragmatics where he roughly thinks of morality as moral questions that are decided by universal moral laws uh, which we uh, establish or um, through the procedure of uh, moral argumentation or discourse, which he captures or reconstructs in his principal you. So that's morality. Ethics is more, these are questions of the good life, either for a community or for an individual. And he makes an internal distinction between um, ethical political questions, what we ought to, what, what, what we want to do as a community, what we want to be. And what he calls ethical existential questions, which are more individual questions of what I want to do and what I want to be. Uh, and then he differentiates between these two domains of the moral and the ethical on the basis of assigning different questions to each of them. Um, now, he, he did that really in response to some criticisms from various communitarian thinkers and he calls them neo-Aristotelian thinkers, but they could also be neo-Hegelian thinkers, who tend to think that morality needs to be embedded in uh, 
a conception of the human good or the good life for human beings, which is prior to it and much thicker than it. Um, uh, that's what, for example, Michael Sandel and Charles Taylor roughly think. And I think he responded to them by by introducing this moral ethical distinction. Um, it uh, so after bringing in the idea of ethical discourse as, as it were part of the moral domain, but distinct from this, um, um, but but distinct from morality. He, he then had to um, he, he he henceforth. Uh, began to construe morality as a more as a narrower domain uh, and a and a uniform domain governed by a single principle principle u and that consisted in this uh, small set or relatively of relatively few in number of thin universal moral norms which are kind of central to our moral lives like you know do not unnecessarily cause harm to others or do not kill, do not lie, keep your promises, that kind of thing. And um, and he reserves the, the name morality for that domain uh, and then thinks of it as sort of surrounded by, and, and as it were, the norms of morality uh, have universal scope or application, whereas conceptions of the good or ethical conceptions or ethical values, as he calls them, lack that kind of universality. Um, and are more particular and concrete um, values that belong to communities or that are um, uh, invested in by individuals um, and shape individual lives. Um, So he thinks there's a strict distinction between the moral and the ethical thus construed, and other people like Rainer Forst have followed him. But... um, a lot of people actually criticise the distinction that, uh, uh, and the way he makes it as being far too rough and ready. Um, uh, a German philosopher, Matthias Kettner, I think, who is a really good philosopher, is someone I agree with on this issue. He, he, he calls Habermas's distinction between morality and ethics semantic politics by terminological fiat. And what I think he means is that the distinction is kind of half-hearted armchair effort in semantic housekeeping uh, doesn't really do justice to, um, uh, if you like, the different domains and aspects of our moral lives. So let's move to uh, John Rawls and then uh, 1971, A Theory of Justice. How uh, did Colbert's uh, so-called stage six, which you'll explain, uh, directly engage uh, Rawls's ideas of a uh, veil of ignorance and the uh, so-called original position. And if you can comment as well, how did uh, Habermas's 1983 moral consciousness and community of action also engage Kohlberg's theory? Yeah, that's a complicated story. Um, so basically, so, so John Rawls in The Theory of Justice has an argument that he calls the argument from the original position, which is really just that... Um, uh he kind of um hypothesizes that um the principles of justice for um uh a a liberal society should be chosen by uh free autonomous individuals who are standing behind a veil of ignorance thus they choose principles that 
uh, in when they're kind of ignorant of their own position in society and their particular talents and they're in fact deprived of all kinds of information that would enable them to make biased choices of uh, principles that would favor themselves and the veil of ignorance is supposed to as it were um, force them to make impartial choices so that they choose the best principles which are his principle of liberty and a second principle, which is uh, uh, a part of which is called the difference principle, that um, inequalities are to be tolerated only to the extent that they are to the advantage of the least well-off. Um, yeah, I mean, you can read about um, Rawls's uh, two principles, which together constitute the theory he calls justice as fairness um, in all kinds of uh, uh, introductory books on rules. Um, now, the, his, his colleague at Harvard, Lawrence Kohlberg, is a deve- developmental psychologist. He's, very, he's working in the Piagetian tradition of developmental psychology and especially moral psychology. And he actually seizes on Rawls's ideas, but he takes them in a rather different direction. He deliberately takes them in a different direction. So he sees. So Kohlberg was thinking of how children grow in to become mature moral beings. And he, uh, his theory is that there are three levels of um, moral development. Um, there are uh, pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional levels of moral development. And each level has two stages, and at the top of it is stage six. And the most mature moral consciousness is one that makes decisions on the basis of something like um, Kant's moral theory, right? Uh, a universal moral theory, one where they look at things in um, as other people would look at them. Um, so they, they take the golden rule, the idea that you should... Um, not do to others what you would not like done to yourself. And they generalize it until it becomes a, a theory of universal morality. Um, and Kohlberg looks at Kant, but he actually thinks that Rawls's notion of choosing principles of justice from behind a veil of ignorance is even better at instantiating the, the principles that he thinks a stage six moral consciousness should instantiate than is Kant's categorical imperative. So he takes Rawls's idea of the original position and he uses it to work out what he thinks is the most appropriate and advanced um, way of thinking morally um, about certain dilemmas. Now, he has a, a complex um, theory, which is part theoretical and part philosophical and part empirical based on um, uh, interviews with um, real empirical subjects about what they would do in in various uh, uh, moral dilemmas, and he interviews uh, children and young adults of various ages. Right? Uh, anyway, the the highest stage is stage six, where the children move. Uh, the, sorry, the, uh, the the adults move from a kind of. Um, uh, roughly from utilitarianism to Kantianism. I mean, that's the, the short answer. Um, 
And so, he, and he has this theory, an essay that he calls the claim to moral adequacy of the highest stage of moral judgment. And in that, Kohlberg writes, look, a decision reached by, ah, sorry, there's one thing I didn't add to there. He actually modifies uh, Rawls's theory of choosing the principles of justice behind a veil of ignorance to, to a slightly different model that he calls moral musical chairs. But it's supposed to... Uh, the idea of musical chairs is you don't know which chair you're going to uh, end up landing in. Um, uh, but anyway, that that's not so important. But um, what he says is a decision reached by playing moral musical chairs corresponds to a decision as to what is ultimately just or fair. Um, ideal role taking is a decision procedure ultimately required by the attitudes of respect for persons and of justice as equity recognized at higher stages. This is suggested by Rawls' derivation of principles of justice uh, as equ- as equity from the original position. So he wrote he wrote that in 1973. So that is evidence that he took Rawls's idea of um, the original position of the veil of ignorance, and he made it into a model for what he thinks is the most advanced moral reasoning. So. That is actually changing what Rawls thought he was doing, because Rawls, uh, although he didn't distinguish very clearly between a general moral theory and a political um, theory of justice in his early works, um, he generally thought that his principles of justice were uh, to be tailored in the first instance or applied in the first instance to the basic structure of society, its basic institutions. So the use of the principles of justice was primarily institutional evaluation, reform, or design. Um, Whereas the use that Kohlberg made out of it by making it into the model for his moral moral musical chairs was as the ultimate principle or ultimate practice of an interpersonal morality, which guided our actions towards other people. So that's very different. So that's how Kohlberg, uh, if you like, Rawls appears in Kohlberg's theory, which which Habermas read very closely in the 1970s and 80s, because he was very interested as a social theorist in how societies develop and how individuals within societies uh, develop and are socialized into collective practices like morality. Um, so. Now, he actually engages in a debate with Kohlberg about how we should uh, how we should think of stage six morality, a kind of uh, a principled morality of rights and duties. And um, uh, essentially, Habermas thinks that Kohlberg has made the same mistake Kant did of thinking of morality as a kind of rational practice that an individual can conduct inside their own head, working out what the solution to um, various moral problems uh, are um, without consulting others. And he he thinks of morality more as a social practice, one that is um, conducted through discourse or collective argumentation, uh, and that involves uh, what he calls ideal role-taking, which is the exchange of perspectives with all others affected uh, by a norm. Now, ideal. I didn't uh, answer your earlier question about in, to what extent is discourse ethics medium. 
um, or influenced by the theories of George Herbert Mead, but they were. And George Herbert Mead has this uh, idea of um, uh, the socialization of individuals into collective behaviors, um, especially um, moral socialization. And he tends, he uses the example of a baseball game. So somebody who, I'm not an expert in baseball, for me it's more, more cricket, but I'll use the example of baseball. Somebody who knows how to pitch um, is a better uh, a batter. What do you call it? What do you call a baseball? It's a better hitter, right? What do you call a guy who mm-hmm. hits in baseball? Uh, batter. Batter, okay. Batter. He's a better batter for knowing how to pitch. Right? And somebody who um, knows how to catch is a better thrower for knowing how to catch. And um, if you exchange roles, right, you you become better at your particular um, uh, specialism within within the team. You play your role better for knowing how it fits in with other roles. Um, and he calls that ideal role-taking. And he thinks something similar – this is me, George Herbert Mead. He thinks that something similar goes on in, in morality, that morality is all about looking at what you do through the eyes of others and modifying what you do um, in the light of your understanding of how others look at you. Um, so, And Habermas thinks that this ideal role-taking uh, actually – is accomplished through our um, discourse, our, our argumentative exchanges with others when we conduct discourse, when we, we argue about what are the principles we're acting on and what are the grounds of those principles and how they affect our actions, what is right and wrong, things like that. Um, Habermas was quite persuasive in his um, arguments that he made directly to Kohlberg. And in fact, he managed to convince Kohlberg of the superiority of disc of his kind of principle you as a, what he called a dialogical principle uh, of morality, as opposed to these monological ways of thinking uh, about uh, justice and morality. In other words, he managed to convince Kohlberg that we should think of morality more as a social practice, which we conduct together than an individual um, process of of reasoning um, so that's really how um uh Habermas's discourse ethics Kohlberg and rules all come together in Habermas's early work let's skip ahead a little bit to the 90s can can you uh briefly lay out the key ideas of John Rawls's 1993 publication political liberalism especially the ideas of reasonable comprehensive uh, doctrines and an overlapping consensus of said reasonable doctrines. Yeah, okay. So maybe there's one thing that, one piece of background that I ought to talk about there, which is that um, between Justice as Fairness in 1971, 1972, when it first came out, and his political liberalism in 1993, um, Rawls undergoes uh, a lot of well he's, he's he's kind of worried he's he's worried about two things he's worried about how a theory of justice um, will be affected by um, becoming uh, a theory of justice for a society that is riven by what he thinks of as reasonable pluralism or if you like the fact that reasonable people disagree about 
how to live their lives about conceptions of the good um, and about other things. Um, so if you like, the problem of pluralism uh, is one that he, he thinks he, he thinks he fell foul of in his earlier work because his earlier work takes various theoretical hostages to fortune. It makes assumptions um, about people, about how they valued autonomy and about uh, uh, how their conception of um, justice would uh, mesh in with their conception of the good. There's something he calls the Aristotelian principle. And basically he, he, he thinks this earlier theory rested on doctrines that reasonable people could disagree with, uh, like a kind of comprehensive Kantianism and a, and a, and a kind of a controversial Aristotelianism, um, as well as other um, theoretical views that were uh, disputed. So he thinks that he can represent his theory of justice as fairness in a way that is more persuasive and better able to provide the stable basis for um, a uh, constitution in a liberal democratic society because it doesn't rest on these controversial ideas that reasonable people might reject. Um, So he introduces this idea of a a reasonable comprehensive doctrine. So a comprehensive doctrine is just a doctrine uh, or a theory um, that shapes our life in some way. He thinks of them as roughly three types, philosophical, moral, and religious. And they tend to be pervasive. The people who hold them hold them to be not only true, but uh, if you like the whole truth, and um, he thinks that one characteristic of a comprehensive doctrine is that, uh, well, no particular comprehensive jo- doctrine is shared by every citizen of a liberal democratic society. Um, you know, the, the millions disagree. I mean, millions in the, those who subscribe to the moral theories of John Stuart Mill, they disagree with the Kantians. Now, the Kantians are bound to disagree with, if you like, the Catholics and uh, other religious groups. Uh, and um, okay, so so then he 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 thinks that I can present my theory as not resting on any of these controversial ideas um, that reasonable people will disagree with. But he doesn't countenance. So, so if you like, he cuts those controversial ideas out of the loop of justification for his theory, justice as fairness. Um, and he does so a little bit like this. Imagine these comprehensive doctrines as being uh, like the shapes in a Venn diagram, right, which intersect with each other uh, uh, around a certain axis. And the intersection can be thought of what he calls the overlap, the overlapping consensus. And I think of the intersection as just um, a bunch of central and important ideas, right, which are common to all these doctrines held by by reasonable people. Now, 
the unreasonable people who have unreasonable doctrines are not one we are trying to forge a consensus with. So they, there may not be any consensus with anyone uh, who's unreasonable. We can just leave them out of the picture for the moment. Um, so, the, so here's the question. Um, what, what is the overlapping consensus a consensus of? And there seem to be two different ideas there that Rawls has. On the one hand, there are this sh these shared ideas which are common to the political culture and that are central, like the idea of uh, individual citizens as free and equal, and the idea of society as a, a fair system of cooperation across time. Um, uh, and he thinks of these as the political values and ideals. Uh, and they become the component values and ideas of justice as fairness. And then he also thinks of the consensus as focusing on a conception of justice, namely on his two principles of justice or justice as fairness, um, or on uh, a range of similar theories that aren't too different from justice as fairness. So there's a political conception of justice, of which he thinks the best example is justice as fairness, but he thinks there might be um, uh, other political conceptions. And there are the values, the political values and ideas out of which that theory or conception of justice is formed. Uh, and I believe he thinks both of these are uh, the focus of consensus, namely people agree on the basic ideas uh, out of which the theories are formed. And when suitably, um, uh, when suitably encouraged by a practical reason to show how these ideas fit together into a theory, uh, they can also agree to uh, the conception of justice that emerges from these ideas when put together by principles of practical reason. Um, so that's the idea of an overlapping consensus of reasonable doctrines. Now, one thing to say about the political conception of justice is that uh, it's not identical with all the ideas that may happen to be shared um, uh, in the overlap, in the overlapping con consensus. Um, so there might be ideas that are just hardwired that we happen to have that don't really bear any particular relation to a just democratic regime or to political society. Um, you know, maybe for all we know, everyone is hardwired to hate uh, purple and uh, orange zigzag striped on jumpers, right? Well, they might be, but that's not going to play any role in our political lives. Um, even if it is hardwired in people and something that everybody shares, um, I, I, I could think of other examples, but they're they're, they're more unpleasant, so I'm not going to um, bring them in. Um, so the point about the ideas that are, uh, that are the component parts of a political conception of justice is that they are, you know, they recommend themselves to the political task of a conception of justice, which is to support a constitutional order in a kind of liberal constitutional democratic regime. Um, so he, he then also introduces something that he calls the liberal principle of legitimacy. Oh, actually, I haven't. Sorry, I've only talked about uh, reasonable comprehensive doctrines. What makes the comprehensive doctrines reasonable is that they are essentially coherent, uh, 
that they're apt to support uh, a just democratic regime um, and that they can be endorsed by reasonable persons. What makes persons reasonable is something slightly different. Reasonable persons, he says, are people who are willing to propose and abide by fair terms of cooperation with others, provided that others do. So um, the reasonable uh, and I'm just going to just try and rack my brains to find out what what he says about what what reasonable means. Um, yeah, so so re- reasonable people are willing up to propose and abide by fair terms of cooperation provided that others do. So I don't want to live my life on the basis of principles that you can't accept as the basis of your shared life with me. And, and that's so the idea of kind of reciprocity is is very key to the idea of uh, reasonableness. And that introduces us to what Rawls calls the liberal principle of legitimacy. Um, which is very important in um, political liberalism. Uh, And I'm now trying to uh, find a formulation of it, but um, you can find it in the beginning of um, political liberalism, the the, um, liberal principle of legitimacy. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to find it now because I'm feeling, uh, yeah, I can't quite put my finger on it. Okay, so... It's roughly this, right? That um, oh, and I'm going to have to pause now and find it. I'm I'm really sorry. I, I lost my thread there. The liberal principle of legitimacy. I've got it here. Um, let me just do a search. So, in the page 137 of Political Liberalism, um, Rawls sets out what he says is the liberal principle of legitimacy, which is this: that political power is fully proper only when it's exercised in accordance with the Constitution, the essentials of which all citizens, as free and equal, may reasonably be expected to endorse in the light of principles and ideals acceptable to their common human reason. And the basic view there is that um, if you're a reasonable citizen, whatever your comprehensive doctrines, whatever your basic um, political and moral views, you will want to live together with others on the basis of principles that you can share with them and that they won't have to um, reject on the basis of of their um, different um, comprehensive doctrine, provided that they are reasonable. Um, So, uh, yeah, that's the the basic view of... uh, uh, That's the basic view, right? Okay, so... How do we get to the main idea of political liberalism then? So, um, of course, now I've lost my um, my document on which I um, prompted myself. Um, so the basic idea is this, right? If if our conception of justice doesn't refer to any of these controversial political ideas that my fellow citizens as reasonable um uh, people who don't share my comprehensive views can reject 
right? If it doesn't, if it's not worked up from there, but it's only worked up from the ideas that we share together and that form part of this overlapping consensus, um, then we can give a sort of justification for our common life together, a political justification. We can, we can actually argue for the basis of a constitution on the basis of ideas that we share in spite of our differences. Um, so that has both a kind of a negative and a kind of positive sense. Uh, it's negative because it brings us together by um, uh, a political conception of justice isn't one that appeals to ideas that aren't shared by reasonable people. Um, it it um, leaves those, as it were, passes over all those in silence. But it's positive in the sense that it does take the things we hold together and works them up into a conception of justice that we can share as the basis of our lives together under laws governed by a constitution. And thus, if society is put together on that basis and our laws reflect the constitution and the constitution is basically just, right, then reasonable citizens will be able to buy into the laws that are consistent with that constitution, roughly. So that's that's the idea of political liberalism. So... Can you also briefly uh, lay out the uh, 1992 published the year before Jürgen Habermas's uh, be- between uh, facti- facticity and validity or between facts and norms um, in, you know, what you think the key ideas are, like the tensions between the two, um, the, the rights principle D and the core originality thesis, just briefly uh, lay out the key ideas. Yeah, I'll I'll do that. Okay, so the reason I I went on a little bit about political liberalism is it's a pretty complicated long book, and if anything, um, Habermas's between facts and norms is even more complicated and even longer. But um, I can give you a a very kind of basic summary of it. Um, uh, so the basic summary. Um, the idea, so the German word is facticity and validity. And these are sort of two dimensions of law and politics. And one is, if you like, the positive component of laws, that they are laid down in statutes um, which are promulgated and imposed on people. Um, the kind of things that legal positivists talk about. And the other thing is the normative dimension of law, namely that they're supported by reasons that people can understand and that give people, um, um, tell people what, or give people a way of understanding what they ought to do. Um, so these two components, the positive conception and the normative conception, um, they, uh, they form a kind of productive tension um, throughout the legal and political uh, system. Roughly speaking, his book is, is trying to um, kind of show and bring out the way these two dimensions uh, uh, relate to each other in various ways. So, um, uh, And they do relate to each other in, in various complex ways. But the, the kind of main, if you like, argumentative structure of the book is is that he manages to derive something that he calls the principle of democracy, which is different to the moral principle you, right? It's distinct from it. Um, He derives it from 
what we began with, principle D, the principle of discourse, right? This, this principle that is based upon what he thinks are shared communicative infrastructure with others. Um, so he thinks that um, principle D, if it's the case that when we, um, uh, when a norm is justified, or when we see that a norm is justified, when there's good reason for a particular rule um, uh, that governs conduct, uh, that we can come to accept it uh, as the result of a properly prosecuted discourse or something like that. If there is indeed, uh, if you like, validity to consensus conditional, um, and that this is a relatively uncontroversial fact, if you like, a kind of reconstructed fact, but nonetheless a fact of our um, social lives together as speaking, reasoning animals. Um, and if you put that together with what he calls the form of law um, in modern societies, you know, the fact that we live together under laws which are promulgated, um, uh, that tell us what to do, they are... Um, uh, they are legitimate in the sense that they uh, are based on reasons we can understand and they give us reason to do what we have independent reason to do. Um, uh, they are not arbitrary judgments made by individuals, rather they're sort of independent and objective um, uh, and they form a kind of reliable system. So that's that's kind of what he means by the form of law. Um, and if you put the principle of discourse together with the form of law, he thinks you can get to what he calls a, a system of rights. And a system of rights are the rights that all citizens of a modern society right, who have this default orientation towards discourse. That he, um, they resort to language and speech and argumentation before they revo- re- resort to violence or deception um, as a kind of, um, uh, as a rule of thumb. Um, uh, in that situation, he thinks you can get a, what he calls a logical genesis of uh, basic rights or the kind of rights that individuals have to grant one another if they are to live together as co-citizens um, under laws. And the, the basic rights or the schema of rights that emerges from this is pretty similar to what the, um, the sociologist T.S. Marshall um, called uh, or set out as a kind of classical sequence of civil, political and social rights in his brilliant uh, essay, Citizenship and social rights. Um, roughly speaking, there are um, rights of that give. So there, there are basic rights that emerge from the what he calls the the autonomous politically the politically autonomous development of the the right to greatest liberty. So there's a liberty principle, basic rights that guarantee lib- liberties, and there are basic rights that. Um, emerge from one's membership in a voluntary association of uh, uh, members of a legal community. So those are the kind of um, political rights. And there are basic rights that result 
from what he calls the actionability of rights, the ability to, as it were, take your rights and um, make them count against others. And then there are um, basic rights to political participation and autonomy, and then basic rights to the social conditions um, uh, that need to be safeguarded um, if citizens are have to have equal opportunities to use their civil rights um, that we've already listed. So that becomes a kind of schema of rights which um, have to be filled out by various communities, but are the kinds of rights that any um, citizens of constitutional democracies have to grant one another if they are to live together as equals under law. Um, So if you like uh, the 400 pages of... um, between facts and norms, is really just describing um, that particular constellation of the principle of discourse, um, the principle of democracy, uh, and its emergence from the form of law and the system of rights that it gives rise to. Now, the only thing I haven't read you there is the um, principle of democracy, which is slightly different from principle U. I don't think I even read you principle U, but the principle of democracy um, uh, is right. The principle of democracy is this: it states that only those statutes or laws may claim legitimacy that can meet with the agreement of all citizens in a discursive process of legislation that has, in turn, been legally constituted. Right? So, note there that there is both a discursive process of lawmaking which is the normative component, a component of validity. And there is the legal constitution of that progress, which is more a kind of positive component or a facticity component. Um, And um, so within the the very principle of democratic legitimacy, there is an idea of the law as positive. That's one of the ways in which there's a kind of a, a, a constant tension between facticity and validity in this book. Uh, and that principle, he thinks, can be derived from principle D in the form of law. And it tells us roughly the, what the shape of uh, constitutional democracy should look like. Um, he thinks the difference, so one difference between democratic discourses and moral discourses is that democratic discourses are based upon all kinds of questions. Empirical questions, pragmatic questions, ethical questions concerning uh, individual and collective goods, conceptions of the good, um, moral questions, and indeed uh, the fair balance of of interests um, in compromises. So discourses, democratic discourses, although they are recognisable cousins of moral discourses, um, are much kind of messier, um, they're more complex, and they involve many more kinds of input. So political justifications are going to be also uh, much more complex and, and messy. And they're not going to have that kind of um, clean structure that he thinks moral justifications have. He thinks that you know, people agree to moral principles always on the basis of shared reasons, and sometimes he says of the same reasons. He doesn't say that about democracy so much. Um, Okay, so that's um, the principle of democracy. I was going to 
also say something about uh, the co-originality thesis. So he thinks that political theory has roughly been conducted from two distinct perspectives. One is the perspective of liberalism, which uh, assigns more weight to individual freedoms and the rights that protect those freedoms. And the other is the idea of popular sovereignty, of the kind of democratic self-rule of the collective. Uh, And he thinks that his conception of constitutional democracy will give equal weight and priority to each of these, right? The individual rights and the democratic process. So you won't end up with this idea that somehow uh, liberalism is only to be had at the expense of democracy. Um, You know, so there there are people, for instance, in... um, very important people like uh, William H. Riker, who argued that there isn't such a thing as the collective will because um, collective choices are always prone to um, irrationality and meaninglessness. And therefore, what's much more important is that there are liberal principles which allow us to, uh, if you like, unelect governments. And that's the heart of um, at the heart of liberal democracy. Um, but Habermas thinks that that's really just... Um, um, uh, that's missing. That's missing the point. Um, he thinks that you need uh, individual rights and individ- the guarantee and safeguard individual freedoms uh, in order to get uh, uh, democratic self-rule going from the beginning, because he thinks that democracy depends on this circulation of various kinds of discourse, moral discourse ethical discourse and pragmatic discourse. And these have to freely circulate in what he calls civil society or in the public sphere. Um, And uh, if you like, the the genius, if there is one, of constitutional liberal democracy is that um, these, these kind of wild anarchic flows of discourse in the public sphere can, if the political system is sufficiently porous to them, through its repre- it is really representative, right? If individual citizens can, um, if you like, get their message across, then uh, arguments in the public sphere or um, yeah, public opinion in the public sphere sort of filter into the democratic system through channels of repre- representation and program the laws. They get taken up into discussions in Parliament where there's a kind of formal public sphere as opposed to the informal one that kind of surrounds the political system and that they program the laws in Parliament um, in the the interest of all citizens. So you get this kind of this sort of two-track view of democracy with a, a political system which takes decisions and outputs laws and inputs to it from the public sphere or civil society, which takes the form of discourse and an argument. And if things go well, then the outputs, namely the laws and the policy decisions from a representative democratic government, will reflect the public opinions that have gone into shaping them so that people will be able to see the point, the normative point of the laws that uh, the the political system produces, and they will automatically buy into them without having to be heavily coerced into obeying them. And that is when all works well, he thinks, there is this, 
Well, he calls it a circulation of power, um, uh, communicative power uh, and administrative power. Um, and roughly the circulation is that um, public reasons or good arguments get channeled from civil society into the political system, program the lawmaking system, the legislative system and the common interests of citizens, and then work their way as outputs, namely policy decisions or laws, back into the public sphere where they receive um, uh, uh, tacit or explicit acceptance by individuals. So, so that's the, if you like, that's the macro picture of democracy which is supported by the, 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 the more reconstructive arguments I gave you, the arguments that begin with D, that go through the rule of law, that take you to the principle of democracy, and then finally to the system of rights. So there's a sort of, a sort of formal reconstruction of an argument and a, and a macro um, picture of how d- democracies function. And, and the two, um, those two components kind of gel together into the, the enormous book. Uh, which is called Between Facts and Norms. Now, what were, what were the main criticisms Haberbos made of Rawls in his 1995, Haberbos's 1995 article, Reconciliation Through the Use of Public Reason? And to what extent did these criticisms actually rest on misunderstandings of Rawls's political liberalism, particularly that uh, Rawls's emphasis on liberalism compared to an idea of democracy? Yeah. That's a really good question. So now we're getting down to the, the nitty-gritty, right, of Habermas's critique of Rawls. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that is to be said is that Habermas's critique of Rawls, um, both in his book Between Facts and Norms, which was finished in 1992, and in uh, his article that appeared in the Journal of Philosophy in 1995, are actually both deeply coloured by his understanding of Rawls' earlier works. Um, So a lot of the arguments that he initially brings against Rawls are arguments that are familiar from anyone who has seen, you know, kind of read the literature on on the theory of justice. So they they come in three kinds, three three types. He, He has a set of arguments against the design of the original position. He has a set of arguments against the idea of the overlapping consensus. And he has a set of arguments on the relation between private and public autonomy and Rawls's general approach to um, political theory. Now, the strange thing about the arguments on the design of the original position is that they seem... Uh, they're the ones that got taken up in the literature. Uh, so everyone... so. The, the, Habermas basically says, look, the original position uh, is a monological device which hypothesizes that principles of justice right, are those principles that would be agreed upon by the rational choosers who stand in the original position behind a veil of ignorance. Um, um, and this is uh he thinks this is a kind of a monological device it's a way in which individuals for themselves um can determine what the principles of justice are and he has a lot of um there's a lot of things to say about that he thinks that so, so one thing he says uh he thinks that um 
um, he thinks that the the argument from the original position basically treats rights as primary goods and treats rational choosers as kind of economically rational agents. Um, and because it does that, it um, it loses sight of what he thinks is the basic deontological shape of rights and principles of justice. He thinks that the um, Rawls essentially presents rights as goods. Um, I don't think, I'm not going to really go into that criticism because it, it wasn't one that um, was original or in many ways fair. But what was original was he, he, he wanted to contrast his conception of um, uh, agreeing on norms as a result of moral discourse in principle U as a superior dialogical alternative to choosing principles of justice in the original position, which is monological. He makes a great contrast between the dialogicality of discourse ethics, which presupposes real people conducting real arguments, and the monologicality of the theory of justice, which presupposes um, hypothetical individuals uh, making hypo- <clears throat> hypothetical choices on their own. Um, as a matter of fact, Habermas probably overdoes that distinction. There's an excellent couple of articles by Christopher McMahon, one in Ethics and one in the Journal of Philosophy, which show that um, actually the way Habermas thinks of um, agreement at the end of discourse as a kind of uh, unanimous um, acceptance of a norm in which each suspends their individual judgments until they see everyone else um, accepting a norm from their own perspective, that that view is actually an incoherent way of thinking about consensus and how it can emerge in discourse. And it's incoherent because it basically robs any individual of anything to be right or wrong about and of any reason for endorsing a norm from their own individual perspective in the first place. So it makes disagreement um, impossible and it makes agreement empty. So it's difficult to see if that's how he conceives of discourse as a kind of joint collective act of each trying to see whether everyone else can accept a norm from their own perspective. Um, makes sense. And in fact, McMahon says that it doesn't make sense, it's incoherent. We have to see um, uh, a consensus in discourse as a kind of piecemeal process um, by which um, individuals kind of um, make judgments about norms from their own perspective. And then they also see that other people make it from their perspective and that gradually a consensus starts to coalesce. And he calls that, this is McMahon now, a kind of weak dialogical principle as opposed to Habermas's strong dialogical principle. And then McMahon then shows that a weak dialogical principle is in fact compatible with a, monologi- a monological approach to ethics. It isn't opposed to it. So it could be that Habermas really overdoes the dialogical monological distinction and that uh, he, therefore his main criticism of, of rules which, with, with which he opens um, is not a very good one. I happen to think that's right. But, the, but beyond that, I think it's really odd in a way that, that Habermas 
um, initially sets his sights on the original position and the argument for the original position because uh, political liberalism, in political liberalism, although he hasn't completely got rid of the idea of the original position, the argument from the original position doesn't figure as a central argument for justice and as fairness. Rather, what figures as a central argument is now that justice and fairness can be seen as a political conception, which means that it's justified by the um, the ideas um, that are common to our overlapping comprehensive doctrines uh, and our common practical reason, uh, and as such um, doesn't involve any comprehensive notions that other citizens can reasonably reject. That's the heart of the argument in political liberalism, not the argument from the original position. So it's odd that he sets his his sight on that, really. Um, And the funny thing is that most of the literature focuses on this comparison that Habermas invites between the dialogical principle of discourse ethics principle U on the one hand and the monological principle of um, uh, deriving principles of justice from the original position on the other. Um, And all the fire, including McMahon's fire, goes in that direction, whichever way you want to look at it. And I just think that neither of those ideas are actually central to their political theories. It's it's as true of Habermas's um, Between Facts and Norms the principle U isn't the central principle, rather the principle of democracy is the central principle. As it is true of Rawls's political liberalism that the argument for the original position isn't the central argument. So I think um, I think that, that a lot of commentators get derailed. They look at those first set of criticisms and they forget that actually this is Habermas really just making criticisms which, if they belong anywhere, belong to... Um, uh, his arguments against uh, a theory of justice, not political liberalism. So, in other words, the arguments we need to focus on are the ones that really do bite uh, on the theory of political liberalism as he understands it. And um, I'm going to now skip to uh, um, the criticisms that Habermas makes of political liberalism that I think are really worth thinking about um, and that don't rest on any misunderstandings and don't really rest upon a view of rules that is more pertinent to a theory of justice than it is to political liberalism. So um, what are what, what are these uh, criticisms? Um, the main criticism is that Rawls doesn't really have a theory of democracy and a theory of institutions. He has much more a theory of... um, He doesn't say enough about the kind of legal side of democratic institutions. He focuses almost totally on the normative side and the side of, um, you know, how we as citizens would want to justify um, uh, our... the constitution under which we live with result of a... with the... Um, a political, a shared political conception of justice. So he just doesn't think enough about the kind of nitty gritty, hard um, uh, legal process, and about the way in which democratic discourse uh, has to fit in and is in turn modified 
by that kind of um, nitty gritty legal institutional side. So that that's one set of criticisms. Another set of criticisms is that basically this, that political liberalism is at bottom a liberalism and that Rawls uh, gives less weight than he should to the democratic process and more weight than he should to the rights and freedoms of individuals. And he doesn't give sufficient attention to the way in which these two are equally necessary and um, equally weighty. Um, basically, he thinks there's too much liberalism and not enough democracy in Rawls's conception of liberal democracy. Um, just trying to think uh, what other um, criticisms he makes that I want to mention here. Uh, yeah, so he thinks that there's a priority of liberal rights over the democratic process. Um, ah, okay, so he also thinks that um, Rawls actually... Um, okay, so he thinks that Rawls construes the domain of politics too narrowly um, because when Rawls talks about a political conception, he's thinking of a notion of the political which has very narrow scope. Um, for Rawls, what, what he means by a political is that a doctrine is political if it's one, roughly speaking, neutral with respect to worldviews, or if not neutral, then which doesn't depend upon any comprehensive doctrines. Two, it is restricted in scope in its application to, in the first instance, what he calls the basic structure of society, right? the constitution, the legal institution, uh, and the kind of the main social and economic institutions. Um, and in fact, he says that it's restricted to matters of basic justice and constitutional essentials. Um, and finally, it's based upon a small fund of common values that are held in common by reasonable people. So uh, those three aspects are the aspects of what Rawls construes as political, whereas what Habermas, Habermas has a broad conception of politics, anything that we legislate over together, right? Whether it's, it's a matter of basic justice or constitutional essentials, makes no difference. If we legislate over and we expect other citizens to abide by it, then it's, um, it's part of politics. So Habermas contrasts his broad conception of the political with Rawls's very narrow conception. Um, so Rawls's idea of these um, the the principle of liberal principle of legitimacy that we are prepared to basically justify um, uh, laws on the basis of principles that every other citizen can ex can accept from their perspective. That's only supposed to govern right these very uh, basic political matters um, that surround the constitution and everything else is well we're not so restricted. So we, we can bring our comprehensive um, doctrines to bear in the background culture and where we are not explicitly lobbying for um, kind of basic laws. Um, so, I mean, look, the, the take home from there is just that Habermas 
criticizes Rawls's conception of politics for being too narrow, for applying to uh, uh, too small a domain, and that he has a much wider conception of what politics is. For him, it consists in both civil society, this arena in which discourse is supposed to um, circulate untrammeled, as well as the political and administrative and legal system. In his... uh, Go ahead. In, in his 1995 reply to Habermas, Rawls argued that Habermas's discourse ethics and the theory of communicative action were examples of what Rawls described in political liberalism as comprehensive doctrines. Why did, uh, why did Rawls make that argument? Yeah, interesting. That's a really good, good question. So Rawls basically says, hey, Habermas, I have produced a political theory my theory actually satisfies the criteria that I say that um, legitimate laws should satisfy. It shouldn't be based upon any comprehensive doctrines, um, philosophical, moral, or religious, right? And that means that I'm not going to justify my theory with any controversial philosophical ideas, So he thinks that the controversial philosophical ideas that were there to an extent, especially in the third part of the theory of justice, have been eliminated from political liberalism. And that's why it's it's a very spare and sparse presentation of of his ideas. Um, But he thinks that Habermas's book is absolutely chock-a-block with theory, very, very controversial theory, like... For example, what Habermas calls the pragmatic theory of meaning, right, or the validity basis of meaning. That, um, and he thinks that uh, uh, Habermas is basically taking needless hostages to theoretical fortune all over the place, presuming, for example, that his general moral theory, discourse ethics, is the true theory of morality, um, and making all kinds of other theoretical assumptions, all of which reasonable people can deny, right? So basically, Habermas, I'm sorry, your theory is a fully comprehensive theory, and it's absolutely full of needless hostages to theoretical fortune. Um, That's kind of what he means by it. I mean, he could have meant other things by it, but the direction in which that criticism is uh, explicitly made is the one that... You, are, you have too many theoretical controversial assumptions and therefore reasonable people can disagree with, with, with your political theory. They're going to find it much harder, he thinks, to disagree with mine. There, that was a short answer. <laughs> Why did uh, Rawls claim that Habermas really gave priority only to political autonomy over private autonomy and individual liberty? And was this... Oh, that's... Yeah, that's... Sorry, was this Was this on point? Was this correct? Yes, he did. And that was totally on point. Um, So I think not only he, but actually lots of people think that although Habermas claims a lot that he gives, you know, that he hasn't, he gives equal weight and priority to liberal individual basic rights and the individual freedoms those rights protect and to the democratic process of self-rule. and yet, I would say a lot of commentators, and my, I include myself in that, think that actually Habermas, if anything, the priority is with 
the process of democratic self-rule. Habermas is basically advocating a theory of radical participatory democracy, um, but in a modern mass society where people live alongside uh, their co-citizens as kind of anonymous strangers. Um, so, but yeah, democracy has the priority. So, so the individual rights are, are very important for him, but they're, they're primarily important because they allow these processes of discourse, sorry, these um, channels of discourse, right? these circuits uh, of moral discourse, of free discussion on theoretical issues, of ethical discourse, either individual or collective, to circulate in this kind of anarchic complex of civil society. Um, obviously, if you don't have freedom of association and freedom of expression, right, that circuit of discourse doesn't get going. So the whole idea that public opinion can crystallize in these discourses, right, the arg- that the rules of argumentation within these discourses can do their work, if you like, and bring the good reasons out and sift the bad reasons away and then program through the representative channels of, rep- of um, liberal democracy, program the political system and laws in the common interest. That old picture doesn't work without the, um, the basic rights kind of uh, uh, structuring that process. But it looks like, if anything, that the main um, – so it's not like with Riker where, if you like, these basic liberal rights are just doing everything that, um, you know, uh, are, are every, everything that is important about um, the democratic process really is important, uh, is guaranteed by the liberal rights and the freedoms that it gives individuals to to, to make decisions, basically elect um, – you know, it provides checks and balances to the constitution and gives citizens the right to elect um, uh, bad politicians out of office. And for Riker, that's basically, you know, the whole of what's good about democracy. Um, whereas um, for Habermas, it's just the opposite. Actually, what's good about democracy is that uh, you get good decisions. So when it works well, you get good decisions taken in the public interest, which create laws that um, then are legitimate and get people to buy into them without the need for force. So it looks as though he does, in fact, uh, I would think, overall tip the balance in favour of democracy over liberal rights. And Habermas is much less liberal than people say he is and much more of a, a radical Democrat than people say he is. Now, how did Habermas modify or extend his criticisms of Rawls in, his 19, in Habermas's 1996 Reasonable versus True? Okay, so there he comes back, I think, with... Uh, I don't think he paid enough attention quite to what Rawls was saying about uh, about how his theory was uh, justified as reasonable rather than as true. So, so Habermas tends to think that um one good thing about his uh discursive or deliberative conception of democracy is that it captures the cognitive benefits of liberal democratic societies which is that essentially through the process of discourse which is of course mediated um 
um, in the political system through parliaments and assemblies and sets of legal rules, but more sort of unmediated in civil society, um, if also affected by things like um, media and social media, um, but affected in a kind of uh, a slightly different way. Um, that um, yeah, so so democracy basically uh, is important because there is such a thing as the collective will, um, and when it's expressed um, through uh, democratic discourses captured through the legislative process, it actually, it actually programs um, laws according to the. The common interest. Now, he, he does make a slight slide there between, if you like, the collective will as something expressed by the, the, the democratic citizenry and the common interest of citizens. But nonetheless, he thinks that that's the way in which democratic institutions work. If you like, uh, the collective will is expressed through elect, periodic elections. And then the, um, and also, um, uh, the collective will gets taken up into the legislative process and gets expressed in laws which uh, are legitimate because they're in the equal interests of everybody. Um, so, therefore, he, he thinks that um, that Rawls kind of downplays that side of the democratic process. Um, and he also thinks that Rawls... Um, seems to make so i think he thinks that rawls um is too quick to present the benefits of um liberal democracies as being based on the contingent happenstance right that we share some ideas in common um that there's nothing really important morally or prudentially about those ideas um, so much as that because we share them they can provide the stable foundation for a liberal democratic regime um, and that's the the line of argument that he he uses in his second argument now as a matter of fact i think he's slightly wrong about that because i think that um, he misunderstands to what extent rules thinks of the political ideas as being intrinsically valuable ideas, um, which are also moral ideas. So he, he says that you know the political conception is a moral conception, and it's a moral conception because the ideas on which are based are very great ideas. They're not easily overridden, and and because they're very great ideas and not easily overridden, um, we share them with other reasonable citizens. Um, so that's more the direction of uh, Habermas's argument in his second um, article, which he writes in response to Rawls's reply, after Rawls has pointed out the various ways in which he thinks Habermas misunderstands political liberalism. So uh, let's... Uh, a year a year later, what is uh, what was John Rawls's proviso in uh, his 1997 public uh, reason revisited? 
And did it loosen the strictures on religious debate in the political realm that were in place in uh, political liberalism? And what does it mean? What, what does it mean to say that a religious doctrine is reasonable and thus potentially political? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot to be said about reasonableness and rules. Um, I mean, basically, he thinks reasonableness is sort of a commitment to shared principles that doesn't rest on any controversial or deeper moral doctrine. So reasonableness, I think, is sort of weaker than um, being morally oriented. If I have a moral or a moral orientation towards others, I might be impartial towards them. I might be altruistic. Um, and he thinks that to be reasonable, I only have to be willing to abide by principles that others do, right? So that's a kind of, it's not an unconditional um, uh, obligation I, that I fulfill and set of duties towards others. It's rather a conditional um, uh, thing, right? Uh, if other people will operate, yeah, if other people pay their taxes, so will I. That's basically it. Um, and that's slightly different from you must pay your taxes because, um, uh, or you must keep your promises or you must tell the truth. Um, so reasonableness is, is this kind of realm, a normative realm, which is not so deep and not so controversial and not so rich as morality, but it's enough to get the, our shared political lives together going. And of course it does. So a lot of people will say that Rawls programs far too much that is controversial into his notion of the reasonable. For example, Rawls does say that reasonable people must recognize the burdens of judgment and the burdens of judgment are roughly that people will reasonably disagree about um, certain matters to do with religion, morality and philosophy. But there are some hard-nosed realists out there who think that it doesn't matter that the, the recognizing the burdens of judgment is actually taking sides in an argument against, let's say, moral realists, um, and that you can reasonably disagree with the view that a reasonable person must recognize the burdens of judgment. So David Enoch, for instance, thinks that. And he thinks that, you know, um, Rawls builds far too many controversial assumptions into his notion of the reasonable. It's not nearly as weak and as, as it were, acceptable um, uh, as Rawls thinks it is. Um, so, um, okay, so what I wanted to talk about uh, the liberal principle of legitimacy and the duty of civility um, because Rawls, is, Rawls thinks that his idea of political liberalism has implications for what we uh, nowadays think of as the principle of separation of church and state. Um, it's kind of complicated, this, because actually a lot of the debate that got going around Rawls's idea of public reason and its application to the principle of the separation of church and state was mediated by a slightly more secularist um, 
uh, interpretation of rules and an independent secularist theory by Robert Audi. Um, so Robert Audi thought that democracy requires that essentially we make arguments in the public political domain uh, on the basis of secular reasons or not on the basis of religious reasons because religious reasons are comprehensive doctrines that most other that, that reasonable people will be able to reject so that when we're lobbying for constitutional change or for matters of basic justice or for you know fundamental policies and laws we have to do so on the basis of shared and that meant for Audi roughly secular reasons now he has got a a very sophisticated account of what a secular and what a religious reason is but I'm not going to go in into that just for the moment but what I will point out is that there's a contrast with rules because rules doesn't talk about secular justifications right he doesn't stipulate that political justifications be secular not religious he says that they be non-comprehensive um and he can actually account for uh secular doctrines that are comprehensive as well as religious doctrines perhaps that are non-comprehensive so he uh, there's maybe room in rules to think of certain catholic doctrines of the common good as non-comprehensive and certain you know forms of atheism as comprehensive and thus open to reasonable rejection by other reasonable citizens so that seems to be a difference between rules and audi that for, for for Audi, the obligation in the public domain is to justify um, uh, policies and agitate for constitutional change on the basis of secular reason, whereas for Rawls, it's on the basis of non-comprehensive reasons. Um, that said, I guess Audi is right that for Rawls, most religious doctrines are what he would call comprehensive and therefore open to reasonable rejection, a reasonable disagreement. And most secular, but not all, most secular doctrines, or most, put it this way, most public and political doctrines um, will be secular. So I guess the, the two distinctions aren't quite as uh, out of kilter as, as they might be. Um, and maybe Audi is... Uh, justified in interpreting rules as he does as basically being on the side on this. Okay, so Audi says basically, look, the principle of the separation of church and state means that when you're a Democrat, you don't use religious arguments. That's that's basically uh, the nub of it, right? You use secular arguments. Um, Rawls says something slightly different. Rawls says this, right? There's something that he thinks follows from the liberal principle of legitimacy. The liberal principle of legitimacy is the one that I um, read out earlier, namely that um, power is um, properly exercised when it's in accordance with a constitution, the the base the basics of which reasonable people can accept from the basis on the basis of their um, common political values. That's the liberal principle of legitimacy. And he thinks that gives rise to, this is rules now in political liberalism, what he calls a duty of civility, right? an obligation to comport yourselves to other citizens in the political realm on the basis of shared principles. This is what he says. 
persons engaged in a just or fair practice um, can. Oh, hang on. That's that's not. That's not. Sorry, that's not quite um, what I was looking. Uh, okay. So let's go back to the liberal principle of legitimacy. It states that our use of political power is proper only when exercised in accordance with a constitution, the essentials of which all citizens may reasonably be expected to endorse in the light of principles and ideals acceptable to their common human reason. So that's Rawls's view of the liberal principle of legitimacy. And he thinks that this imposes a duty of civility on citizens, namely to and I'm quoting here, explain to one another on those fundamental questions how the principles and policies they advocate and vote for can be supported by the political values of public reason. Um, So what does it mean, can be supported by the political values of public reason? Well, for rules, that means it can be supported by all and only, right, or a subset of the ideas that are part of the overlapping consensus. or something which is it follows more or less from that it can be supported by the political conception of justice um which is worked up from those common ideas um audi thinks that what that really means is that it can be supported by secular reasons and it mustn't be offered on the basis of religious reasons okay so um so that was kind of Rawls's um, view, but then he started thinking. Actually, that that's a very restrictive view, um, and what what does that view imply? Well, it implies, in a way, that there's a duty on religious citizens and other citizens to make a good faith attempt, right, to find public political justifications for their favoured laws and policies, right? So when they're in the business of agitating for constitutional change or laws or when they're, when they're citizens in the ballot box or when they're um, judges on the Supreme Court, um, they need to find public justifications for, for laws. So that's the kind of principle of pursuit. But then there's also a kind of um, a doctrine of restraint, right? The duty of civility obliges these people, whether citizens in the ballot box or Supreme Court judges, to refrain from offering comprehensive and hence non-public and non-political justifications. Um, so that's quite a that's quite a strong view, um, and I think he was brought to revise that view by, you know, I think people gave him. Uh, the example of Martin Luther King using the Sermon on the Mount um, as a way of um, kind of justifying civil rights and the abolition of Jim Crow and things like that. And so later he came to uh, put forward a a weaker view Um, uh, in an essay called The Idea of Public Reason in 1997. He adopts what he calls the provisor, And on this view, he says, look, people can use, even in the political realm, whatever arguments they like, provided that reasonable comprehensive doctrines, uh, sorry, provided that in due course proper political reasons and not reasons solely given by comprehensive doctrines 
are presented that are sufficient to support whatever the comprehensive doctrines are said to support. In other words, people can, if they want, use religious arguments in favour of the laws they want to introduce, provided that they can find um, proper political arguments that will be acceptable to other citizens that don't share those religious views in due course. Um, and the thing about that proviso, although it was weaker, it did leave a number of questions open, right? So who were, on whom did the obligation fall now to um, produce those political uh, public arguments in public justifications in due course? And how far into the future could they be, um, um, could they be left open? Um, and Rawls wasn't particularly clear about um, about the about those matters, so that's Rawls's proviso, and it's basically a weakening of um, the duty of civility. What is your assessment of Habermas's response to this, which I've recently learned from your book was after Rawls's death in uh, Habermas's 2005 Religion in the Public Sphere, especially his institutional translation proviso? Yeah, that's right. So. Habermas came pretty late to the party on all this. Um, but he gave a lecture in 2006 on religion in the public sphere in which he introduces something that he thinks is a better alternative to Rawls's proviso um, that better safeguards the need to provide uh, publicly accessible justifications for laws and that better respects the principle of the separation of church and state than does Rawls's proviso. Um, So before I actually give the institutional proviso, I probably ought to mention that there were um, two sets of arguments brought against Rawls for his his view, right? And they were put most forcibly by uh, a political philosopher called Nicholas Voltersdorf um, and another one called Paul Weitman, who said that Rawls's view or Audi's interpretation of Rawls's view actually discriminated against religious citizens, right? Because it required religious citizens, right? It required of them that, as Wolterstorff said, they ought to base their decisions concerning issues of justice and constitutional essentials um, uh, on reasons they don't hold. Right? Whereas, in fact, their religious consciousness tells them that they ought to base their decisions concerning fundamental issues of justice on their religious convictions, right? So with religious citizens, if they have a choice, they'll make their decisions about constitutional essentials and matters of basic justice on the basis of their religious convictions. And they'll make other decisions on other grounds, which is exactly the opposite of what he thinks Rawls says they should do uh, and that Audi says they should do too. Um, And he thinks that this will require it puts a burden on religious citizens that it doesn't put on secular citizens because it requires them to split up their identity if they want to make a uh, if they want to agitate in favor of a law that 
physicians may assist suicide or on capital for and against capital punishment or for and against the permissibility of abortion. Uh, they won't be able to adduce reasons that are truly theirs, namely their religious convictions. They will have to introduce reasons that they're leveraging only to try and persuade their fellow citizens. And that that places them, that discriminates against them, basically. And it requires them to split their identity into a, a secular identity that's not theirs and a religious identity that truly is. Um, and it, yeah, so, so, so they think it's kind of unfair and it's too demanding. Um, so Habermas kind of has that in mind when he comes up with his so-called institutional translation proviso, right? He thinks, hey, I can, um, I can come up with a view that's better than Rawls's and that is not prone or vulnerable to the same objections, which he thinks are good objections against Rawls. But that's Habermas. So he says, roughly speaking, that um, every citizen has to accept that only secular reasons count, right? Only secular reasons count beyond the institutional threshold separating the informal public sphere, that's civil society where discourses circulate, from parliaments, courts, ministries, and administrations. Um, so this calls for the epistemic ability to consider one's own religious convictions reflexively from the outside and to connect them with secular views. And religious citizens, I'm still quoting Habermas here, can acknowledge this institutional translation proviso without having to split their identity into public and private parts the moment they participate in public discourses. They should, therefore, also be allowed to express and justify their convictions in a religious language, even when they cannot find secular translations for them. Okay, so he calls it an institutional translation proviso that deliberately calls to mind Rawls's proviso. And he says this doesn't require religious citizens to split their identity into a religious and uh, secular part. Um, so it looks as though he thinks his view is similar to Rawls's, but that his view successfully answers the criticisms that Rawls's doesn't. Uh, for various reasons that I can go into if you want, I don't have to here, I actually don't think Habermas's theory is a proviso in Rawls's sense. <laughs> and I don't think it uh, provides, as it were, a good rebuttal of those objections. But then I don't actually think that those objections really bear on Rawls's view in the first place. Um, so, um, but it's it's complicated to say why, um, and and I can do that if you want. But but basically, Habermas thinks of what Habermas is talking about is that there should be a kind of legal institutional filter between civil society and the political system, right, which keeps religious reasons out and lets only secular reasons in so that ultimately all laws are written in secular terms and justified with secular reasons and no laws are written are, are written with as it were uh, in re religious language and justified on the basis of religious reasons 
Uh, and that forms this kind of more or less semi-permeable barrier between church and religion on the one hand and the state on the other. Um, so on the one hand, it Habermas is saying, fine, in, um, in civil society, anyone can use any arguments they want. Right? So it's 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 more liberal. There's no du- there's no moral duty on individuals preventing them um, um, making religious arguments. But on the other hand, it insists that you can make as any argu- as many religious arguments as you want, but they're not going to get into law, and they're not going to be the the reasons that in the end at the end of the day justify laws. Um, and recognizing that proviso is really just recognizing that there is that filter, that institutional mechanism. For present for preventing religious reasons from entering entering into the statutes. So, what's uh, going on with you next? Are you working on another project? Well, yeah. As you know, when an academic writes a book and spends a long time doing it, and finally, you know, get kind of a when things go well, perhaps get recognized for being an expert in a certain area, they might want to move on and do something else, but they'll get flooded with invitations to talk about that book and to write similar things and to go to conferences. And I indeed have been wanting to move on, but I've had several tempting um, invitations to to uh, to talk about, uh, about Habermas. But yeah, I do intend actually to to move on um, in slightly different directions. Once I've um, fully done justice to um, to this book and to the other views I've had um, on Habermas. So at the moment I'm working on uh, certain similar things. I'm working on an article that looks at Rainer Forst's principle of justification. Um, uh, and that was an invitation to speak at a conference uh, to the Kant Society of Great Britain, and Habermas was actually invited to speak, and he dropped out. And they kindly invited me to um, speak in his stead, and I so I, I spoke on um, uh, Rainer Forst's work. Um, uh, I'm also rewriting the Stanford Encyclopedia entry um, on Habermas. So those two books are. Uh, are still in the the same ballpark, but yeah, I've got an. My next project is to finish a book on Adorno, which I've been writing with uh, a colleague and good friend of mine at Duke University, uh, Henry Pickford, and we're writing about um, Adorno on transcendental homelessness and being at home in the world, and Adorno's idea of criticism, and uh, that that should be a, um, rather different. Um, uh, but it's another thing that I do. I write on kind of German critical theory. But in the in in a slight longer term, I actually want to work much more on kind of forgotten aspects of political philosophy uh, and neglected aspects. And I think one of the most neglected and forgotten aspects of political philosophy is anarchism, um, which I think uh, is actually. Uh, it's kind of been written out of political philosophy because political philosophy is state-centric and always has been. And the anarchists are anti-state. Um, and the person I, I, I want to write about first is Petra Kropotkin, who um, 
turns out he lived a few doors down from me in Brighton when he was here at the end of the um, uh, just before the um, Russian Revolution and um, before the uh, First World War. And um, I'm quite interested in his ideas of mutual op- um, mutual aid and um, um, cooperation, and in uh, his kind of anal- a- 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 anarchist political philosophy. And I'm very interested in the way in which it is relevant to today, given the kind of uh, years of austerity and the the gradual shrinking of the welfare state and the kind of the the running out, if you like, of uh, of the um, economic uh, post-war boom that, as it were, made liberal democracy flourish for a while, um, and after the kind of um, after the nineteen eighties with the shrinking of the welfare state and years of austerity, I think that um, the kind of ideas, some of the some of the anarchist ideas of mutual cooperation and um, um, resourcefulness um, have become much more important um, than they were, and uh, and yeah, and I think that um, so 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 I, I want to write about Kropotkin. I want to write about um, solidarity, and I, I want about uh, I want to write about uh, anarchist ethics. We're looking forward to that project. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. So the book is The Habermas-Rawls Debate, published uh, (laughs) earlier uh, this year by Columbia University Press on behalf of of, uh, Professor Finlayson, as well as New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. This is Ryan Tripp signing off, and please tune in next time.